Today's case, you guys, it's a big one. It's a big one. In fact, it's one of the most famous high-profile cases in New Zealand history. So I highly suggest you make yourself comfortable, get yourself a little drink, get some water, get a coffee, get a wine, whatever it is that you want to relax with. Get into a comfy little spot, grab your pet, whoever, and sit back and be ready. So if you have no idea who I am, hello, my name is Jenny. I talk about all kinds of terrible things on YouTube. Mostly true crime cases, exclusively true crime cases really, but sometimes I talk about true crime books about horrible things as well. So if you're into any of that and you want to hear about horrible things, then I highly suggest you subscribe. But if you don't want to, that's okay. We'll just chat and I hope that you sit back and enjoy today's video. So as formally mentioned, today's story is a major one. It is unsolved, very annoying, I know, but it is, there's recently been some movement in this case. It's really high profile. Reward money was just announced like last year, even though it's been like almost 30 years since this happened. So you may have heard of it, you may not, but today we are talking about the unsolved disappearance and murder of Kirsty Bentley. So Kirsty Marianne Bentley was born on January 18th, 1983 in Christchurch, New Zealand. And yes, it is another South Island story. What is up with the South Island? I don't know, but I promise you I am not planning this. I'm not seeking out cases that happen in the South Island. It just, they happen in the South Island and I don't know why. Anyway, Kirsty lived at 165 South Street in Ashburton, New Zealand, which is show you on the map, gets very hot in Ashburton. Kirsty lived with her parents, Sydney and Jill Bentley and her older brother, John. Kirsty's mother described her as being vibrant, compassionate, honest and full of life as a teenager. Kirsty was a very creative girl and she loved to spend her time doing drama classes and expressing herself through poetry. Kirsty wasn't interested in things like drinking or doing drugs, which was she was 15 at the time, so these would have been a lot of pressures around her, but Kirsty was much more interested in her creative pursuits. She really liked Winnie the Pooh, and she still had a large collection of stuffed animals in her bedroom. So I think she was probably quite young and innocent at heart, which is very sweet. Apparently Kirsty's bedroom walls were just plastered, floor to ceiling with posters of the Backstreet Boys, and apparently her number one celebrity crush, Prince William who definitely was a looker in his day, I'll give him that. Kirsty attended Ashburton College and she had a great group of friends. She was really well liked as a teen. Her friends actually described her as the peacemaker because she'd often be the one to go between cliques and groups at the school and try and resolve conflict. And recently, leading up to her disappearance, Kirsty had actually begun dating one of her classmates. So the day that Kirsty Bentley went missing was New Year's Eve in 1998. And she didn't have any plans for a wild night out. Like she wasn't planning on going to like a nearby beach and having a bonfire or anything. She was actually really excited because her boyfriend was meant to be staying the night that night. So it was a really hot summer's day that day and it was 34 degrees Celsius, which is stinking hot, but Ashburton is kind of notorious for 
being like the hottest place in the country during summer. And New Year's Eve is right in the dead of summer down in New Zealand. And that morning of the 31st, Kirsty's mother Jill left for work at around 9.30 in the morning. Before she left, she spoke for a short while with her daughter about how excited Kirsty was that her boyfriend Graham was coming to spend the night. And apparently before she left, Kirsty even played her mother a song that she felt described her feelings that she had for Graham. It was just a regular morning, Jill said, and before she left, she helped Kirsty to pin this blue sarong that she liked to wear. Apparently she had trouble with pinning it. And even though Kirsty was super excited about Graham coming over for dinner and spending the night, understandably, because Kirsty was only 15 years old, her mum and dad were not that thrilled about the idea. Apparently, Kirsty had argued with her dad about the matter of her boyfriend coming to stay the night, but Kirsty was adamant that this was happening and Jill said that she just felt resigned to the idea because you guys know what teenage girls are like, you know, like I know what I was like. If you want something, you will not let it go. If you don't like what your parents are suggesting, you'll be like a stick in the mud. So I, I, I can imagine exactly what that situation must have been like because I would have been the same way. And Kirsty's older brother, John, was actually at home for the holidays. So he was usually studying at the University of Canterbury during the year, but he'd come home and he was working at a berry picking job over the summer. And apparently when John was home, he liked to spend most of his time hanging out in his room. And apparently he'd recently dyed his long hair black because he didn't like to be called a Hanson brother or teased for looking like one of the Hanson brothers because naturally he had very blonde hair. He was into heavy metal music and computer games. And we'll talk about this a little bit later on because it made me think of Damien Eccles from the West Memphis Free a little bit, but more on that later. Now, John was pretty introverted. He was a bit of a nerdy guy. He said as much himself, he was studying a bachelor of science and apparently he was highly intelligent, which I do get from various quotes of his throughout the course of the, the research. He sounds like a super, super switched on guy. He believed at the time that the reason that Kirsty had been acting out lately is because she was jealous that he was the smart one in the family. But I feel like based on what I've read, Kirsty was just acting like a normal 15 year old girl, which isn't that you're the nicest person. It's just that you're pushing the boundaries. You're trying to kind of you know, assert yourself as your own person and, and become independent. So nothing about any of the arguments that Kirsty had with her family raised any red flags for me, really. It just sounded like normal 15 year old stuff. Her mom, Jill, described it as her princess behavior. But yeah, I mean, we'll maybe never know, but we'll talk more about some of these instances shortly. So John had started work pretty early in the morning that day and he got home at about noon. And when he did come home, he said that he found the house empty. His dad had gone out to run some errands and apparently Kirsty had gone shopping with one of her friends. Jill was still at work and when Kirsty's boyfriend Graham phoned the house at 1 p.m., John took down a message to give to Kirsty to phone back when she got home. So that morning, Kirsty had gone out with her friend Leanne Jellyman um, they went to the Ashburton Library together at about 10.30 in the morning. The pair went shopping for a little while, then they grabbed some lunch at McDonald's, 
before her friend's sister dropped Kirsty home at about 2.30 p.m. When Kirsty walked through the door at 2.30 p.m., her brother relayed the message from Graham and Kirsty immediately tried to phone Graham back, but he didn't answer. So she left him a message saying to call her back. At this point, John had gone back to his room to keep playing video games and he came out a little while later to get a snack, but he noticed that both Kirsty and their black Labrador dog, Abby, were gone. Now, since they were both gone, he naturally presumed that Kirsty had taken Abby out for a walk. It was not unusual for her to do so. Apparently, she used to walk Abby all the time. But when Graham phoned their house again at 4.30 p.m., John started to get a little bit worried because Kirsty still hadn't come home. And the track that Kirsty used to walk Abby was along a trail off Chalmers Avenue by the Ashburton River. And while John was unaware that his sister had left the house, he thinks that he heard the front gate opening and he noticed that the dog and the leash was missing. So fair assumption. One of the neighbors claims to have seen Kirsty walking past with Abby at around five past three that afternoon. So Kirsty's mother, Jill, arrived home from work at about quarter past five that evening and John immediately confronted her asking, where Kirsty is, did she know, had she heard from her? He explained that Kirsty had taken Abby for a walk but hadn't yet returned home and she usually would only be like a half hour or so. So it had been almost two and a half hours by this point since Kirsty had in theory left the house. Now to this, Jill immediately started to panic. She was very worried about Kirsty and knew that this was out of the ordinary. She wouldn't just walk off and disappear without saying anything. She immediately phoned Graham, Kirsty's boyfriend, who confirmed that he hadn't heard from her either and he was not sure about where she was. So Jill started walking down the usual track that Kirsty would have taken and she didn't see her. She started to get really, really anxious at this point and she decided to turn around and head back for home to see if Kirsty had come back. Jill said that she was instantly filled with dread and that for the last few months, she'd had this dark foreboding that something terrible was going to happen to her daughter. Apparently when Kirsty was first born, she stopped breathing and this was because her mother had been taking some epilepsy medication throughout her pregnancy and when Kirsty was born, she started experiencing withdrawals. Kirsty pulled through, but ever since that event, Jill had been terrified that something might happen to Kirsty, And I imagine it would have been a very traumatic experience to see your newborn baby struggling like that. So I understand if that would make you kind of a little bit terrified and paranoid about something happening to your child. Jill went down to Kirsty's bedroom to have a look around and see if there was any sign of where she might've gone or if she may have come back. And she saw that Kirsty's shopping from the day earlier with her friend was still on the bed and at that moment she just had this feeling of like mother's intuition that her daughter was dead. She described feeling airy and still as she stood in her daughter's room like she just knew that sweet Kirsty was no longer with us. So at this point Jill told John that they would wait until 6 p.m. before they went out for another search. She hoped that her daughter was perfectly safe, that she would show up at the house of her own accord, but of course six o'clock rolled around and there was no sign of Kirsty. Kirsty's father Sid arrived at the house just after six that evening. Jill and John very quickly filled him in on the situation and how long Kirsty had been missing, which at this point was around four hours. At that point, Sid thought 
we can't wait any longer and decided that now is the time to phone the police and file a missing persons report. Now in New Zealand, when it is a minor who is missing and Kirsty was only 15 at the time, there is no wait to file a missing persons report. So fortunately, the moment that the police were called, a huge search was pulled together to try and find Kirsty Bentley. All night long, members of the community, family, police searched and canvassed the area for hours and hours, but there was no sign of Kirsty. She had just disappeared. Or Abby, the dog was gone too. Now Sid had heard from a neighbor that they had heard the sound of a dog barking down by the river. So he took off down there hoping to find any sign of Abby or Kirsty. Maybe they got lost, maybe they'd fallen into the river, but again, there was nothing. However, something that was a little odd is that on the way down to the riverbank, Sid actually had to stop and throw up along the way. Um, he said that he had a migraine, but uh, people thought that was a, bit, a little bit weird. However, it was also known that Sid was kind of like an actual alcoholic. So it's also possible that he was drunk, had had too much to drink, or that just the gravity of the situation was very friggin' stressful, which is nauseating. So could have been anything. So obviously Kirsty's family were all down on the riverbank trying to find Kirsty and bring her home. And eventually they decided to just head back for a little bit for a short break, maybe see if Kirsty would come back on her own, but police instructed John to take his bike and search the trail again, which he did, but nothing turned up. At around 8 p.m. Sid went out and picked up John and his bike and brought him home. Now John only stopped at home for a short while uh, before he actually headed out with another search party, a group of volunteers which included his uncle. And the group stayed out well past midnight trying to find Kirsty. Sid decided to go to local areas in the town and conduct a search there to see if anybody had seen anything or Kirsty had wandered into town for some reason. He eventually ended up driving to Wakanui Beach, which was about 15 minutes drive away to search for his daughter. Don't know why he would have gone there, but you never know. But he did eventually arrive home after midnight. So when Sid and John both arrived back at the house after midnight, they stopped again just very briefly. They just had a coffee and a snack before they went out to continue their search. They searched the river tracks and rugby grounds and some industrial areas around the town with a few other people, but they, again, they didn't find anything. They ended up coming home at about 3 a.m. And throughout the night, members of the search party were doing the same thing, searching, 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 quick coffee break and a snack before they continued their search. So this was a huge effort, like a massive, massive effort straight up front. So to not find a single thread of evidence about where Kirsty was, is very concerning and, and obviously immediately suggests that foul play may have been at hand because if she just come into strife by accident, they would have found her by now. So the search had carried on all night with the police and local volunteers. And then on New Year's morning at 8 a.m., search and rescue was called in to start searching the area with them as well. And then there was something that was discovered at about 10 a.m. that morning, Dave Saunders, who was a member of one of the search parties, found Abby, the dog, near the Ashburton Riverbank. 
Apparently he had seen an area of flattened grass that led off the track and when he followed it he discovered that Abby had been tied to a tree with her dog leash. And this was a very dense area of bush by the river and it was close to a, a park nearby as well. And when they approached poor Abby she did not make a sound. She looked very very sad and timid. Poor Abby looked haunted like she had seen some shit. And apparently when Saunders mentioned Kirsty's name little Abby's ears perked up. But strangely this area had actually been searched the night before and nobody had found Abby or seen her or heard her. So it was a little odd that she had gone unnoticed. People theorized that perhaps the reason Abby hadn't been found straight away is because it was such a dense area of foliage, like so you couldn't see her. Maybe she'd been lying down and the, a group of the volunteers just hadn't seen her. Maybe she was there the whole time and she just didn't make a sound. Abby was also very dehydrated. Another theory as to why Abby hadn't been found the night before is that somebody brought the dog to the area after the initial search and tied her to the tree sometime in the night or early that morning after the search parties had gone. So yeah, dunno, dunno. It's possible she was there the whole time, but seems unlikely. Seems unlikely, especially if other members of the Bentley family were down there as well. I know for damn sure that my dog, you would know if she was down there, she'd let you know. Mm -hmm. But I have more thoughts on this later as well. And now there was a little bit of discussion as to whether the dog leash that she was tied up with actually belonged to the Bentleys or not. Because apparently, initially, they, the Bentleys, were not sure if that was one of their dog leads. But then later they thought that actually maybe it was. I, I get that, you know, if it's a just a standard dog lead, then, you know, could be possible. But it did confuse authorities as to why Abby hadn't made a sound and, and the Bentley family as well. They figured that surely with everyone running around in the, in the night, everyone calling Abby's name, calling Kirsty's name, that Abby might have made a sound, which I do agree. I do think it is unusual that she didn't say anything or make a sound. Even Kirsty's own family thought that Abby the dog would have started barking or at least alerted searches to her location they thought it was very odd that she would just stay silent and in fact the authorities actually tested Abby for drugs to see if she'd been sedated but unfortunately the results that came back were non-conclusive but that could also be that by the time they did the test if she had been drugged it had cleared her system by that point and that does kind of make sense sedating an animal like whatever happened to Kirsty if they're you know when there is another person involved, having a dog in the mix is a variable that you don't want to mess with because they can make they can make noise, they can hurt you, they could attack you, they are a cesspool of evidence. So short of it, sedating the animal seems like a very reasonable solution. Again, it's odd that Abby was left alive or not released. That is strange, but anyway. So officers went down on January the 3rd to actually test their theory. So they tied Abby up in the same location and then went back down the track and they called Abby from their location around the area that the searches were that night that they were initially conducting the search to see if Abby would respond or not. And then she actually stayed silent. She didn't, she didn't make a sound. 
But anyway, about 20 meters away from where Abby was discovered tied up, police found two articles of clothing that were later confirmed to belong to Kirsty Bentley. And it was a pair of underwear and boxer shorts. These items of clothing were not torn or damaged in any way. And they had been like hung on a branch, almost like they'd sort of staged the scene. And yet, despite the discovery of Abby the dog and these articles of clothing, there was still no sign of Kirsty. Now on January the 6th, 1999, police decided to relocate the Bentley family to a motel temporarily so that they could search the Bentley home for any evidence, any possible clues of what might have happened to Kirsty. Now apparently Sid Bentley was very pissed off about this and he felt that it was a violation of their space on the police's part and said that society was increasingly under watch by Big Brother and I know that this feels like a weird thing to say and there are a lot of odd things that Sid does but I do think it's important to think about maybe he's just a slightly strange man, you know, like I think maybe he's on the spectrum. I, you don't know. But it did seem odd that he'd be so um, adverse to the search taking place, um, particularly when you never know with teenage girls, you know, like that's the thing. Teenage girls are masters at concealing information from their parents. <laughs> Seriously, I could get away with a lot because I was very, very, very careful about what I disclosed to my parents and how I kept that from them. So I do think that it's you know very reasonable to search the home in case Kirsty did have anything hidden that might give any kind of clue or indication of what had happened to her. However, when police asked Sid for his car keys to take a look inside his Holden Kingswood ute, apparently Sid just threw the keys at the officer and hurried off. So not a great look for Sid, but again, like, you don't know. So as police started looking into the Bentley family, obviously to get a bit of background and understand the context of the home, they did appear like a regular happy family on the outside, but they did discover that the Bentleys were kind of a bit dysfunctional. So Sid and Jill met in 1973 and they dated for just a week. Apparently Jill had been training to be a nurse and Sid was working as an engineer on a ship. But really early on in the piece, Jill received a letter from Sid, who was in Panama at the time, asking if she wanted to marry him. So things moved pretty quickly and they got married in South Canterbury in 1976. So I guess that was three years after they met. So that's, that's, that's nice. Sid returned to sea after their marriage and by 1977, they were living in England and John was born in 1979. And Sid actually really liked being at sea for months at a time, but unsurprisingly, it was pretty hard on his family. Would have been a lot for Jill to have full responsibility of Kirsty and John as well, as well as working. And apparently Kirsty was very close to her father Sid when she was young and he described her daughter as being a precious, kind and caring girl. But when she hit her teen years, she wasn't that interested in hanging out with her dear old dad, which again, it seems like pretty typical teenage behavior to me. Your parents aren't cool anymore and it's not cool to be friends with them. So that doesn't surprise me all that much. But one of the biggest issues in the Bentley family, kind of the wedge that ever increasingly drove them apart and caused tension and friction was Sid's excessive drinking. 
Now apparently Sid would often have tantrum-like outbursts which was very difficult for the family to manage and work around but apparently in 1993 Sid joined Alcoholics Anonymous and did eventually go to rehab so he obviously knew he had a problem and he did try in his ways to get support for those. One of Kirsty's childhood friends Angela Rouse observed that when they would have sleepovers at each other's houses Sid would sit in his chair and just drink whiskey out of a cup and he'd often become angry and aggressive while drinking but she maintains she never ever saw him get physically violent. And as the two teens John and Kirsty grew up and Sid's drinking continued to be a problem John unsurprisingly just kind of stayed in his room he avoided hanging out with his dad he avoided having conversation with him because they never really got along very well which again isn't that surprising so during these years when things were a little bit tense Kirsty used to disappear off to her friend Angela's house a lot and kind of stay the night as often as she can and Angela said that she thought Kirsty liked to sleep over to kind of escape the tense dynamics of her own house and that her family was kind of a bit more quiet and normal which would have been a nice sense of stability and security for Kirsty in those teen years. Now Kirsty and her brother John had not been very close while they grew up. They spent a lot of time annoying each other which is very typical brother-sister behavior and John was similarly not interested in going clubbing or drinking or doing any of those kinds of things. And he was quite intro John was quite introverted himself. He had a few close friends that he liked to spend time with, particularly ones he'd met in university. But Kirsty was really keen to become popular. She wanted to become more outgoing and increase her status and she felt that John kind of cramped her style a little bit because he was kind of like the weird nerdy guy and this kind of drove a bit of tension between the pair as well. However, John reckons that when he went to university, Kirsty had a bit of a change of heart toward her older brother. Apparently, it was now considered cool to have an older brother who was away at college, so she started to tolerate him a little bit more. And Jill Bentley agrees that while it wasn't always a happy family, they were a close family and they did all love each other. Jill said about her relationship and the family dynamic, quote, I didn't have a close relationship with Sid, but we had a routine. John was a loner, but I enjoyed it when he came home on weekends. The two children had just developed a respect that came with age, and when he was home, he watched Kirstie's TV with her. Having said that, they were chalk and cheese. Jill went on to explain that she really felt that Sid's alcoholism was a big driving factor in causing tension within the family. But he did work hard, and he was a good provider. And when interviewed, Sid's boss at work that admitted that it was no secret that Sid had an issue with, with booze and that he was a very heavy drinker. Apparently he often even had alcohol in his system at work and everybody at Sid's work, like his colleagues, everyone knew he had a short temper. But again, like Kirsty's friend, everyone maintains that they had never, ever, ever seen Sid become physically violent. So for 16 long days, Police and volunteers continued to search Ashburton for any sign of Kirsty because the girls still hadn't turned up and there was still nothing aside from Abby and the two items of clothes to suggest what had happened to her. They initially began their search just in the Ashburton area but 
eventually over the course of that time they expanded their search to the wider Canterbury region. The New Zealand army even sent troops in from the Burnham military camp to help with the search. And then on January 17th 1999 two men were walking along the Camp Gully Bridge when they made a horrifying discovery. They found a badly decomposing body that was lying in a clearing of densely overgrown scrub at the bottom of a steep embankment. The area where the body had been discovered was rough terrain and apparently it was quite popular with fishermen, boaters and campers. The body dump site was outside of Methven in the Rakaia Gorge. It was located near State Highway 72 which was part of the scenic route. At the time it could not be determined immediately whether it was Kirsty Bentley's remains that they had found because the body was too decomposed. The area that the body was located in too was about 40 kilometers away from the Bentley family home. One of the properties nearby was a Canterbury farm. There was a row of planted pine trees at the top of the cliff which dropped straight down to the river and the property owner had leased it out to a man at the time who was away at the time of the disappearance and the discovery. So the two men who found the remains were actually looking for a cannabis patch because apparently the area was very popular for growing illegal marijuana. And apparently when they made the discovery, they did kind of um and ah about whether or not to report it because obviously what they were doing there was not legal and they were worried that if they got the police involved, they'd get in trouble. But fortunately, due to the nature of the hideous discovery, they decided that obviously the best thing to do is to report it to the police, and so they did. The body had been covered with branches and leaves, and she was found lying in a fetal position, wearing the same clothes that Kirsty had been wearing the day that she disappeared, with the exception of the underwear and boxer shorts that had been found with Abby the dog. The clothes Kirsty had been wearing was a blue butterfly patterned sarong, a black top, and black Colorado shoes with white soles. The sarong had been unpinned and spread out over the lower half of the body. And Kirsty's hair was down with the scrunchie tied around her wrist, which was unusual because she would always do her hair up before going for a walk. People say that apparently she never left the house with her hair like that or would hardly ever. So as soon as police were alerted to the discovery of human remains, they acted super quickly and immediately cordoned off the area. While they conducted their investigation, the dump site became a no-fly zone and police were on site for days as they conducted an extensive investigation and gathered as much evidence as possible. They took plaster casts of all tire tracks located at the Canterbury farm hoping that one of those tire tracks might lead them to Kirsty's killer. At this point the investigation into Kirsty Bentley's disappearance and now murder was dubbed Operation Kirsty by the authorities. Police were very very thorough in their search of the area in the hopes that something might come up about what had happened to Kirsty. This included even luminoling the gate to see if there were any traces of blood. Police spoke with 
as many residents in the Rakaia Gorge area as possible and asked anybody with any possible information to come forward if they could. There was also a caravan park located a few kilometers down the road from where Kirsty's body was discovered and police wanted to hear from anyone and everyone who had been at that caravan park over the last few days to come and speak to them in case they had seen anything or heard anything. And actually the supervisor of the caravan park contacted the police because they said that on New Year's Eve, they had seen a young teen girl who appeared to be quite anxious. Apparently she'd been with a young man and the supervisor grew quite concerned about the couple. Apparently they called the police early that morning and gave them the license plate number, which apparently the police checked out. Now, for a long time, the police actually refused to confirm if the remains were that of Kirsty's, obviously because they needed to confirm this legitimately through DNA evidence. This was difficult because the body was in a, an advanced state of decomposition. It was the middle of New Zealand summer and she had been out there for a good couple of weeks now. So forensic experts continued to work on identifying the body and the poor Bentley family were just sat at home waiting knowing what the inevitable was going to be and just trying to make peace with that and waiting to get that phone call to tell them what they already knew. During this time, the, the family pleaded with reporters to stay away from their house. This became a very high profile story in New Zealand and the media were dogged in covering it and the Bentleys just wanted to be left alone for five minutes just to process what had happened and come to terms with the discovery. It took three days for dental records to arrive to the forensic examiners, which would allow them to positively ID the remains of that of Kirsty Bentley. And on the 18th of January, it should have been a joyous day in the Bentley house as Kirsty Bentley would have turned 16 years old, but instead her family were sitting inside mourning what had happened and bracing themselves for that call from the forensic examiner. So when police finally could confirm that the remains belonged to Kirsty Bentley, they went to the Bentley house to inform the family of the terrible news. And apparently when they did this, they watched the Bentleys closely for their reaction because they were growing suspicious of John and Sid Bentley. They had yet to reveal the dump site and apparently Sid said something that kind of triggered a few red flags for them. He asked if Kirsty had been found by accident or if someone was searching for something. And while this did stand out to officers, I can sort of see what he is meaning by that. I can imagine that he's, he's probably wondering, did they stumble across the scene on accident or did the person who found her have something to do with it. Do you know what I mean? That was my first thought anyway. I wasn't like immediately concerned at that response. And also the man just found out this horrible news about his daughter. Your brain is not necessarily firing on all cylinders, so I'm not sure. But anyway, the police did think that this was very odd and it only furthered their suspicions that they had about him which in my opinion are pretty unfounded to be honest. So the pathologist was able to confirm that Kirsty had probably been killed 
pretty soon after she disappeared on the 31st of December. And they believe that her body had probably been hid in the Camp Gully area on the night of December 31st. And they were able to kind of determine the rough time of death by examining Kirsty's stomach contents, which still showed traces of undigested french fries, which she'd had for lunch that day. Kirsty Bentley's funeral was held at the St. Stephen's Anglican Church on the 25th of January, 1999. And a massive amount of people turned out, estimated to be between 500 and 700. Kirsty's body was cremated and her ashes were placed in a steel urn. And the Bentley family had created a lovely little memorial garden for her, so the urn was buried in amongst the spot. So at this point, police still don't have a lot to go on and they urged the public to come forward with any information if they had any. In particular, they wanted to hear from any local cannabis growers. They also wanted to identify any vehicles that may have passed by the area that night in case somebody had seen something and didn't know what they had seen. By this point, Kirsty Bentley's murder became one of New Zealand's most high profile cases. And in fact, just the picture of Kirsty sitting in the chair wearing those blue overalls is so recognizable among New Zealanders because it continues to be so infamous and high profile. So all major news outlets were covering the story as closely as possible and that amount of media coverage was considered both a help and a hindrance by the police. A help because the two men who had found Kirsty's body did decide to come forward with their discovery because they had actually seen Kirsty's mother, Jill, on the news in days prior pleading for anyone with any information to come forward about their daughter. So they'd seen that and made the connection that that's probably the child of this woman and that's what led them to make the report. However, the police and the media were often at odds with each other. For example, when Kirsty's body was located, before police had had the chance to formally identify the remains through the correct channels, and inform the family themselves, the media already published that Kirsty's body had been found. So it was like the Bentley family were learning this through the media instead of being sat down and had this told to them by the police. So that's not great. And throughout this horrible, harrowing ordeal, Kirsty's poor family were just hounded by the media who were just desperate for any quotes or any information that they could get. The poor family is just trying to come to grips with this awful awful thing that just happened out of the blue and I don't know why media continues to do that like I know you've got to get your story but at what cost you know like give this family some peace so throughout the course of the investigation police did receive hundreds and hundreds of tips and leads and actually the suspect list at one point grew to hundreds and while the number of suspects that they were kind of zeroing in on did fluctuate. At one point, police managed to get that down to like 20 people that they were trying to eliminate. However, they had tips and leads coming in every day that they had to follow up on. So this did change over time. And the media covered and picked up on any information about potential suspects before they were eventually cleared. So one of the people that the police looked at as a potential suspect was farm worker Barry Hepburn. Now Barry had been 52 at the time of Kirsty's disappearance and murder and apparently he used to walk his Alsatian dog along the same track that Kirsty would walk Abby. And Barry was 
determined to be mentally challenged and actually officially considered to have the mental capacity of just a teenage boy. However, there were some strange things. So the day after Kirsty disappeared, New Year's Day, Barry did not show up for work, although it was New Year's Day. Maybe he just got on the piss, who knows? Uh, and then the next time that Barry was seen, he was uncharacteristically clean shaven and fresh. But again, that doesn't necessarily mean anything. He was later cleared anyway. If that's the reason that they suspected him, it's so unfair. Someone else who was considered a suspect in the investigation was Charlie Smith from Rakaia. Now he apparently had boasted that he had played a role in Kirsty's death and his vehicle, a Ford Falcon, had apparently been repainted very shortly after Kirsty's disappearance, which is suspicious. Now I don't actually know if Charlie was officially ruled out as being a suspect, doesn't I couldn't find anything about that. I know that there are still like some suspects on there, but more concerning than, than Charlie is that Kirsty's brother John and her father Sid were also considered suspects in the investigation. Obviously both men denied having anything to do with Kirsty's murder and John spoke to the media and said that he thought it was just common sense for the police to consider them suspects as of course you do, you look close first. So he wasn't concerned that the police considered them suspects, he thought that they were just doing the job, which I think is very big of John, if I'm honest. I think, good for you, mate, because it's true, it is true. You look at the loved ones first. However, things got really stink because some locals started treating Sid and John really badly, pretty much assuming that he did kill his daughter, the media had published some stories that Sid and John were suspects and you know what people are like, they just take this and run with it. And so they had a really shit time. Apparently when John did eventually return to university, people would like spit at him when he would walk down on the street and yell horrible things at him when they drove past in, in their cars, which is just so awful because this guy who, I mean, these two, the brother and and the father searched and searched and searched and searched for their sister and their, and their daughter for hours when she disappeared, unrelenting. If you had had something to do with the disappearance, why would you try so hard to have her be found? It just, I'm, and yes, realistically, they could have done it to seem legit and to stage it, but based on everything we've ever seen about families who are involved in the murder or disappearance of a loved one this isn't really what they do so i think it's really really sad that they were targeted the way that they were when they had just gone through something so awful and there was no basis no evidence to victimize them like anyway I could go on. The police did later admit that yes, both of the, the Bentleys had been considered suspects in the case, which again is not unusual when you are looking into a murder of this nature. However, they never ever found anything in the family home that suggested a crime had taken place there or that the two had had anything to do with it. And one of the reasons that Sid Bentley, and I won't say this is not great, but one of the reasons Sid was initially considered a suspect in the beginning is that he didn't have an alibi for the time that Kirsty disappeared. But that's not the that's not the part that's concerning. 
we'll get to it. Now at first, when interviewed by police, Sid told authorities that he had driven to Christchurch that day to drop off a water blaster and get some work tools. He said that he'd spent a few hours in Littleton before driving home. However, a witness claimed to have seen a man with an English accent that fits Sid's description at the Hotel Ashburton at about 4 p.m. that day. The man had been in a checkout line ahead of him buying cigarettes and when police later checked the till receipts, they confirmed that that sale did in fact take place. So they believe that Sid was back in Ashburton long before he actually said he had returned, which also put him in Ashburton without an alibi around the time that Kirsty had gone missing. And then again, in October 2000, Sid changed his story. This time, he claimed that he'd been washing dishes and suffered a blow to the head after striking it on a cupboard. He said he had forgotten that he'd actually been in Ashburton the day that Kirsty had gone missing. His new story, he said that he'd arrived in Ashburton at 2.30 p.m. after driving home from Christchurch. He'd been about 30 seconds from home when he decided to drive out to Wakanui Beach because he had a migraine. Now, apparently Sid did stick to this story for a while, but apparently he actually changed it again later in 2015 when police questioned him, but it doesn't, they don't, nobody actually says what he changed it to after this. I don't know what his third version of the story is. Maybe they are withholding that information because it's still an active investigation. I don't know. So obviously because of Sid's constantly changing stories, he didn't have a firm alibi for the time that Kirsty went missing and changing your story that much is just really suspicious in general. So it did draw attention from the police. However, the Bentley family firmly defend Sid and say that if he is withholding information, that it must be something that's really embarrassing to him, too embarrassing to divulge, and that's why he hasn't been truthful. But I have to wonder what is so embarrassing that you would withhold that information instead of being eliminated as a suspect in the murder of your own child. Like, what is so embarrassing that you can't tell police that? I don't know. Doesn't make sense to me. When Sid spoke to reporters in 2002 about Kirsty's disappearance, he said that he'd ended up in Christchurch on New Year's Eve and he could easily drink a 40 ounce bottle of scotch and then quite comfortably drive home to Ashburton. So maybe he had done a hit and run. I don't know. That would be embarrassing enough not to tell the truth. Hmm. Maybe he did kill someone, just not Kirsty. So one of the potential theories that arose during the investigation of the case is that John Bentley had been jealous of his younger sister because she'd started dating her new boyfriend, Graham, and this led him to kill her, which doesn't make sense at all. Like that is not a theory in my head, but apparently police thought that this jealousy would have been enough for John to kill Kirsty. And of course they had no proof of this. And when they did question John about it, he said he felt ambivalent towards Kirsty and her boyfriend and had no feelings about it, wasn't jealous. No surprise. So then two years after Kirsty's murder, Jill went and spoke to the police about how they still considered her husband, Sid, and her son, John, to be suspects. She said that police told her that about 80% of murders are committed by a family member, 
but Jill strongly believes that her daughter's killer falls into that 20% and that the killer was still out there walking free. However, John and Sid Bentley were closely watched throughout the investigation and apparently the house was even bugged at one point. But obviously police never discovered anything that was incriminating because we would have heard about it by now. Jill was upset about how police were handling her daughter's case and felt like the family had been largely kept in the dark and didn't have many answers. She was frustrated that her own family was on trial despite the, the fact that they were just trying to grieve this hideous loss of, of their daughter. Now at this point, police actually voiced their opinion that they believed that John Bentley had killed his sister and that their father, Sid, had helped dispose of the body and cover it up. But this theory had zero evidence to support it. So at this point, police asked retired British detective Inspector Chuck Burton to consult on the case. And when Burton reviewed the case, he stated his opinion that Kirsty's killer must have been somebody who was close to her and knew her well. He based this on the nature of the crime, such as the fact that she had been killed by, while walking a familiar route and that the dog was later tied to a tree instead of being killed or let loose, which that is interesting to me, actually. That is an interesting point. Why wouldn't you just dispose of the dog? He also commented on the way that Kirsty's body was almost kind of delicately placed in the dump site near Camp Gully and covered with leaves and branches, almost as a show of remorse. However, no charges were ever laid against Sid or John or anybody actually for that matter. There has never been enough evidence to convict or charge a suspect in this case. Finally, in 2018, authorities confirmed that they didn't consider either Sid or John a suspect in Kirsty's murder anymore. Only took like almost 20 years. So for months and months after Kirsty's murder, police continued to ask anybody who had seen any vehicles passing by the area that night to come forward. They believed that somebody must have seen something. And at one point, police received a tip from a mechanic stating that a green comma van had been spotted in the area of the crime at the correct time frame. He thought it might've been involved in the case and he passed the license plate number along to the police. And apparently it was a 1961 camper with distinct comma branding badge attached to the front. It was either blue or a faded blue green color and the van had last been registered with NZTA, the New Zealand Transport Agency in 1995. Now, apparently this sort of van was actually really common in New Zealand at that time with tourists and travelers and campers. And many of them were unregistered. However, at the time of Kersey's murder, there were only two vans registered in New Zealand that actually matched the description. And not only that, but the mechanic wasn't the only one to have seen a van that matched that exact description in the area at the time of the crime. For the weeks before Kersey's disappearance leading up to the murder, several people had actually spotted a van that matched this exact description around the Ashburton area. It had also been seen in the Camp Gully area, which is where Kirsty's body was found. Police urged anybody with any sightings or information about this vehicle to come forward, and they did receive a ton of tips from people who'd spotted a van that they felt matched this description. However, every sighting was discounted because apparently it didn't match the exact description of the vehicle 
when police actually got into it. Now, a witness reported seeing the comma van on December 15th. They claimed they had seen three young Maori men in the vehicle, one of whom had light three-quarter length dreadlocks. The man had been described as being in his early 20s with dark pants, leather boots, and a light-colored waistcoat. A witness reported seeing these three young men again in Ashburn on January the 10th near the Beach Road Dairy in Ashburn. But this time they were now also traveling with a, quote, European-looking man. And the group of them got out of the van and went into the dairy. The man had a dagger tattoo on his upper left arm and was clean shaven. However, unfortunately, the comma van was never found and there has been no more leads surrounding this mystery vehicle, which is bananas to me that they have the license plate number, a very distinctive looking vehicle, and yet nobody can find it. What the hell? And if this was a vehicle that was, say, rented by a travel company, like a tourist company, surely they have some record of this collection of vehicles in and around that area. Or wouldn't you check petrol station camera footage as well? Because they've got to get gas from somewhere. I'm sure they did all this, but still. Police were never able to speak to the van's occupants and question them about Kirsty's case. And in addition to this group of young men who had been spotted in the van, a witness spotted a young teenage girl also standing outside this camper van near Chalmers Avenue. Now, the identity of this young girl has never been determined. Police have urged her to come forward. Apparently, she was known in the area and the dairy owners knew her because she was a regular customer. However, even when they handed out flyers requesting information about this young girl, no information came forward. The girl never came forward and her connection to the van and possibly to Kirsty was never established. So in 2014, the lead investigator on the case, Detective Inspector Greg Williams, stepped down. The case was then handed over to Des Detective Inspector Greg Merton and Sidebar, I am pretty sure that that is the same Greg Merton who took over the Helen Milner Black Widow case, which we spoke about in a couple of previous videos. Small world, and man has got his hands full down there in Christchurch because people are up to shenanigans, I tell ya. So Greg told the media when he took over the case that he was certain that he would get this solved. He was determined to open it back up, examine fresh leads, new evidence, and figure out what happened to Kirsty. Now in 2009, before he stepped down, Detective Inspector Greg Williams appeared on a TVNZ, Television New Zealand program, called The Investigator. On this show, he acknowledged that some members of the public had criticized police for having tunnel vision about the case. He countered this by saying that there had been over 300 persons of interest in the Bentley case. There were a ton of people on that list and many who were yet to be eliminated for various reasons. Now, members of the public, many claim that they had called in leads about the disappearance of Kirsty and were disappointed when their tips had not been followed up on. They claimed that police weren't taking them seriously. And since the show aired, even more people continued to phone in with tips and information and police said that this proved that they were not disinterested in learning of these leads and information, 
they felt everything was pertinent to the case. One tipster who wanted to remain anonymous said that police did not want to hear information from him because the information differed from the pet theory that Kirsty's father and brother had been the ones to kill her. And this tipster claimed to know of a suspect who was somebody that was actually known to the Bentley family who had a long history of violence against women. And this is really interesting, but the suspect also owned a comma van that was similar to the one that police were searching for. And apparently the man even had video footage to back up his claim, but the, this tipster was not contacted by the police and he believed it's because they were determined to pin the murder on Kirsty's own family. And there was another tipster who had seen a car in the area near where Kirsty's body had been found. They said that there had been a young blonde haired girl in the vehicle who seemed visibly upset. And this person had called police repeatedly hoping that they would look into what they'd seen and what they had reported. But according to the tipster, police had shown no interest. Now, Sid Bentley had seen this episode of the Investigator show and he said he was very heartened by the show's angle of kind of endeavoring to prove Sid and John's innocence, or at the very least, show the, the holes in this theory and how unlikely it was of all scenarios that that would be the one that took place. He had never heard of some of these leads before, particularly the one with a guy with a history of violence who owned a comma van and that it had been spotted near their house and that this vehicle was seen near the area where Kirsty's body had been found. The family didn't know about these things and he couldn't believe that the police had not looked into that further or even told the Bentley family about these leads. He felt that it was a pretty big coincidence one that was too big to ignore, and I agree. Sid had been approached to be involved in the show, The Investigator, but he had chosen not to because the Bentleys had decided as a family that if they were going to speak to media or take part in a show, there always had to be some benefit to the investigation of the case. And I think that that is honorable because it would be so traumatic to go on a show, relive the horrific details of this terrible thing that happened to your family for nothing. So. Big ups to them. Now, sadly, Kirsty Bentley's father, Sid, died of esophageal cancer in 2015. He was 64 at the time of his death, and kind of strangely, there was no mention of Kirsty at his funeral. Mourners spoke about how Sid was a kind and generous man and was well remembered for his lemon tree. Apparently, he used to give them out to friends because he always had them in abundance and the front of the church was decorated with photos of Sid as well as baskets of lemons. Friends spoke about Sid's education, his early days, and the time he spent working on various ships. He had been a family man and apparently he had always carried photos of his two children in his wallet right up until his death. Now Sid's death and his funeral was widely publicized in the media. Of course, these things are whenever anything happens. And in this case, it brought renewed interest to Kirsty Bentley's cold case. Now, after Sid's death as well, Jill, Kirsty's mother, actually was given Kirsty's ashes, which was still in that urn, but had been buried in the memorial garden 
in the backyard where Sid had continued to live until he died. Now sadly, Sid and Jill Bentley had actually divorced in 2000, not too long after Kirsty Bentley's murder. And apparently they split up around the same time that Sid changed his story for the first time to the police. But Jill claimed that this had nothing to do with the reason that they split up and that it just got too difficult living with an alcoholic. And in 2001, Jill met Noel Peachy. The pair met online and they dated for a while before they got married at the Dunedin Cathedral. The couple moved to Invercargill. Now John Bentley acknowledged in an interview that a lot of people still considered himself and his father to be a suspect in the murder of his sister. And he came out because he was worried that since his father had died, maybe some people wouldn't be as forthcoming with information. If the general public believed that Sid had been responsible for Kirsty's death, then once he died, maybe they saw no need to come forward with anything. He worried that the truth of what happened to his sister may never be discovered. John Bentley moved to Australia shortly after his sister's murder and he did not attend his father's funeral in Ashburton. Apparently he and his dad had had a falling out 13 years prior to Sid's death and during this falling out Sid had told him to never come to his funeral so John said he was simply obeying his father's wishes. Now apparently when Sid and Jill had separated, John had maintained a relationship with his father, but Sid's drinking just grew more and more out of control. Apparently this made him increasingly difficult to be around, but the straw that broke the camel's back for John was when Sid started spreading bad rumors about Jill's new husband, Noel, that John had had enough. He said he thought he was being a hypocrite and that because Sid understood how damaging these rumors can be after people spread rumors about him killing his daughter, that for him to then go out and spread rumors about Noel, he was no better than the people who'd said those things about him. And John tried really hard to stay in contact with the police following the years after his sister's murder. He wanted to stay involved and be kept updated on any progress. And despite all these years, John remains adamant that his father had nothing to do with the case. He said that if Sid had done it, he would have marched himself down to the police station and confessed immediately. He said there's no way that he would have been able to keep that a secret. And that if John had done something to his sister, his father would have marched him down as well because confessing would have been the right thing to do. And honestly, I just believe John. Like, he just sounds like a nice, intelligent guy. And the way that he was targeted by the police seriously feels like a bit of a witch hunt, like what Damien Eccles went through just because he has long black hair and listens to heavy metal music. John Bentley's opinion is that there was a miscommunication between the Bentley family and law enforcement once Kirsty's body had been discovered. He said it's this miscommunication that has led to him and his father still being on the suspect list until as recent as 2018. Apparently the police believed that Sid had used his ute to transport Kirsty's body into the Rakaia Gorge. However, John maintains that had the ute been forensically tested, 
pretty much straight away after Kirsty disappeared, they would have been able to very quickly rule out Sid and John because it would have been obvious that there was no evidence. However, it took them a full week to test for traces of blood after Kirsty's disappearance, in which case the samples are virtually inconclusive. Now, following Sid Bentley's death, a woman actually came forward to the police and claimed that she believed her ex-boyfriend had actually been responsible for Kirsty's murder. Now, apparently this man had actually been a suspect in the early stages of the investigation. He'd been interviewed by both police and reporters multiple times. I don't know who this person is, by the way. This remains unclear. You can probably figure it out by you know, a bit of our own investigative work, but still. Now, the woman had also been interviewed after Kirsty's death, but she said that if police interviewed her now, she would change her statement. The woman apparently is from Christchurch and for legal reasons could not be identified. And apparently her boyfriend's vehicle had been investigated during the investigation and DNA samples had been taken from the vehicle for further testing. Apparently this man had felt harassed by police and, ah, uh, yeah, it's the guy. <laughs> it's the guy who had his vehicle repainted. Surely, that's gotta be who we're talking about. Someone else who was considered a suspect in the investigation was Charlie Smith from Rakaia. Now, he apparently had boasted that he had played a role in Kirsty's death, and his vehicle, a Ford Falcon, had apparently been repainted very shortly after Kirsty's disappearance, which is suspicious. Just, yeah. Just connecting those dots there. So by the time police interviewed the woman the second time, this was 2015, because it had not long been after Sid's death. And she said that throughout the years, she'd always suspected that her ex-boyfriend had been involved in the case. She told them that apparently this ex multiple times confessed when he was drunk to having been responsible for Kirsty's death or having played a significant role in the case. And she apparently thought that the boyfriend was just joking about his involvement. However, he always denied having anything to do with Kirsty's murder. But apparently she grew like legitimately concerned in 2004 when he started sharing details of the crime that she didn't think had been revealed in the media or by police. So felt like things only someone who had close involvement to the case would know. When she asked him how he knew these details, he said that the police had told him, but she didn't really buy that. And this conversation stuck with her over the years and that kind of seed of uncertainty continued to grow until 2015 when she did come forward. However, over the years, she did dig into media reports of the case and discovered that a lot of what he had said that she thought he shouldn't know had actually been mentioned by media, so it was possible that he was being truthful. But it was when she watched that 2010 documentary, The Investigator, that she finally decided she had to come forward. The woman told Detective Williams, who was still handling the case at that time, about a conversation that she'd had with her ex-boyfriend. She said the following, quote, I didn't have anything to tell them back then. Things that they had asked me because I had not been with him that long, I would say no to. I did say to him, Detective Greg Williams, all those questions you asked me years ago, if you asked me those questions today, I would change to yes he has, yes he has, and yes he has. But back then it was no, no, no. The woman swore up and down that she was not making the story up to get back at her ex-boyfriend and that she had had 
very little contact with him since they split 10 years prior. And Detective Merton, who has since taken over the case, refused to comment on the woman's allegations, but he did say the following, quote, he was investigated at the time. I haven't read all the details about the investigation. There are tens of thousands of documents on this file. All I know is he was investigated. Merton also confirmed that DNA testing from the crime scene was still ongoing. So they were still continuing to take samples and test them for further information. He did not specify, however, if those DNA samples included the samples taken from this woman's ex-boyfriend's car. He said that throughout the previous year of the investigation, there had been a great deal of people working on the case and they were looking at a variety of suspects. And then a new suspect came up in March 2017. Police began investigating Russell John Tully as a suspect in the Kirsty Bentley case. Three years prior, Tully had murdered three staff members at the Ashburton Work and Income Office. Detective Inspector Greg Merton confirmed that Tully was a person of interest, but he kind of broadly said that there are a number of reasons why someone might be considered a person of interest, and it could be solely based on someone's personal history or their connection. So it doesn't necessarily have to be that like a new piece of evidence occurred in the case. And to kind of feel this, Tully had lived across from the Bentleys back in the 90s when the murder took place. He was known to camp out in the Ashburton area, but he denied being involved in Kirsty's murder. Tully had not been interviewed during the first part of the investigation at the time because he'd been living in Nelson. And in May 2018, authorities announced that he had been totally ruled out as a suspect. Apparently they had spoken with him at great length and had been able to ascertain very, very specific details of exactly where he was, what he was doing, where he lived, who he was with, everything during the time of the crime. One thing that is quite interesting about Tully's multi-casualty shooting at work and income that day is that Kirsty Bentley's father, Sid, was actually supposed to be there at the Wynn's office at the exact time that the shooting started and the only reason he wasn't is that his mobility scooter broke down on the, on the way there. So he literally had an appointment there at the time and who knows what might have happened that is some crazy coincidence so in 2010 authorities made the decision to reveal certain aspects and details about the case that they had withheld from public knowledge in the interest of hopefully drumming up renewed attention so obviously there are many details in an open investigation that the police will keep to themselves because it's good leverage to determine if someone is being truthful or not if they know things that hasn't been revealed. One of these details that had been kept from the public was Kirsty's cause of death, which the autopsy determined had been caused by blunt force trauma. So police revealed that Kirsty had been struck at the right backside of the head hard enough that it had severely fractured Kirsty's skull. And according to the pathologist, Kirsty likely would not have survived for very long after sustaining such an injury. Other pieces of information that law enforcement later released were things such as that Kirsty had not been thrown down the steep embankment. So this is an important piece of information because it would mean that somebody had to carry her in their arms carefully down the embankment and placed in the fetal position, which shows a level of care and almost remorse and like the way that she'd been covered with the sarong and branches 
it's it does seem like the killer probably felt pretty stink about what they'd done another tv show by tvnz called sunday brought retired British policeman, a child murder expert, Chuck Barton onto their show. Now, apparently Barton is an international criminal profiler and he had studied the Kirsty Bentley case. By looking at the evidence, he believed that it put Sid and John in the mix as suspects. He said that by the way Kirsty had been killed, it suggested a youthful type assault and that the way her body had been kind of carefully brought down the hill indicated a more mature hand at work. He believed that whoever killed Kirsty had a strong emotional connection to her, but Burton also believed that the dog Abby, who'd been tied up, would probably have had to be let off the leash briefly and then tied around the tree again, but that she had not run away, she'd stayed close by, so she knew them maybe, but it could also be that she was protective over Kirsty. But Barton believed that this would indicate that the dog had known the attacker and that she'd been comfortable in the person's presence. He also believed that the site near the Ashburton River where the dog and Kirsty's underwear had been found had been staged. He theorized that in doing this, it would make the crime seem like there was a sexual element to it, which would distract police from what had actually happened. Now, police were never able to determine exactly where Kirsty had been killed. They don't know whether that was at the steep embankment or the Ashburton River or another location entirely. So John Bentley is now in his 40s. He has a doctorate in astronomy and he's aware that he is still considered a person of interest in his sister's murder, although it is frustrating. Quote, I remember not seeing her leave, but I think I heard the gate shut. I can't remember if she told me she was going for a walk or I just presumed it from hearing the gate. I stand by what I did say when I was interviewed. I'm just trying to live my life as normally as I can. Having a good circle of friends helps. Unfortunately, dad, for whatever reasons, could not or would not clear himself and therefore I could not be 100% cleared. I know I didn't have anything to do with Kirsty's death, but there is nothing I can do to clear myself. I have to wait until they find the killer and that will then prove my innocence. Having to be passive and wait to be proven innocent is very frustrating. John said that he and his father never discussed theories or suspicions with each other about the case. John never asked his father if he did the crime and his father never asked John if he did the crime. Now there has actually been some updates, some recent updates in this case, which is very interesting. So in July, 2022, just last year, the police announced a whopping $100,000 cash reward for any information that could lead to an arrest in the case. And following this announcement, police said that they have new information that suggests that the person of interest could be a cannabis user living in Ashburton, which is interesting because remember the people who found Kirsty were looking for a cannabis patch. Police said that they have a list of about 10 names that they are focusing on in the case now. Some of these were already on the list to begin with, but there have been about 14 people who've been totally ruled out and about 40 other loose ends that need tying up. And at the time of filming this video, we don't know if there has been any further updates, but it hasn't, it's, it's still less than a year since that cash reward was announced. So I'm really hoping that they have some more information soon. It's very interesting that they are zeroing in on someone with cannabis connections as being a key person of interest. So hopefully we will have an update and some like real answers soon. Okay, so in closing, thanks for 
still being here if you're if you're listening i know this is a long one there is so much to it so many moving parts and interesting points and i guess in closing thoughts i had a bunch of questions after going through and researching this case like for one there's never any mention of the boyfriend like what was the boyfriend doing what was his alibi at the time of the disappearance why was he not identified as like a key person of interest straight away especially with the fact that Kirsty was found with her hair down like she was meeting somebody for like a date or something like I don't know I just wonder if maybe she bumped into him like why don't we know whether he was definitively ruled out or whether that was looked into or explored I am like losing my voice at the end of this long video so please bear with me. But I'd be really interested to hear from animal behaviorists if Abby would stick around the site where Kirsty had just been or if she was still there but in trouble. Like it would not be surprising if a loyal dog wouldn't want to leave that area or make a sound if she was scared. So I, I'd love to know if any behaviorists have anything to say about this or chime in on the case because I think there could be more to it than just she must have known the attacker therefore she was comfortable with them because if a dog is fearful they can be very submissive but anyway i'd love to hear your thoughts on the case below what do you think i definitively don't think that sid or john had anything to do with it i feel like they were unfairly targeted for no good reason i kind of see what they're getting at with the idea that maybe one did the crime and then the other covered it up but there's just nothing to suggest that it really reminded me of how Damien Eccles was targeted by police in the West Memphis case just because of the way he looked that he was a bit of a weirdo and liked to listen to metal John seems like a really nice dude to me with his head screwed on he doesn't seem like the murderous type at all I think his actions were very much that of somebody who is concerned about his missing sister and nothing there raises a red flag to me oh my voice is just giving up the ghost so i've got to wrap up this video now thank you so much for being here let me know your thoughts on this case in the comments below as always my sources will be linked in the description and let me know any stories that you might like me to cover or anything you want to hear about in future videos until then thank you so much for watching if you're still here and i will see you in the next video bye